Sean Edson, I work for At Venue and head up our music partnerships, and you're on Promoter 101. I'm Ben Steinberg. This is Promoter 101, episode 26, and I'm joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Luke Pierce. We have a fairly lame show this week. You should probably turn off the podcast right now. I'm serious. Best thing to do is go away, listen to something else. It's really lame. Are they gone? Good. Sorry, had to do that. We had to shake those other people, because this week we have a really awesome podcast. It's a gem. Don't you agree, Luke? I absolutely do, Dan. It's a packed house in the podcast today. We're going to be joined later by X-Ray's Steve Strange, Paradigm's Brandon R. Frankel, from San Francisco's Harley Strictly, Don Holiday, and we're going to close out the interview block with martial arts Yumong Shaw and his artist LEX. We put up a post on social media this week asking who you wanted to see on the podcast for an interview. We had some great ideas from the Crystal Pistol himself, Henry Glasscock, to Live Nation's big dog, Michael Rapino. We'll do what we can to make your suggestions happen, at least the ones we agree with. And feel free to email us at any time with your ideas or suggestions at steiny at promoter101.net. Toby Layton Pope sent in this suggestion for the Promoter 101 Book Club. If you want to get into the mindset of the dirty, filthy record industry in the UK 90s, read Kill Your Friends by John Nevin. Hey, it's Dave Chumley here from Primary Talent International in London. I'm really privileged to be on Promoter 101. We're taking the show on the road. In two weeks, Dan and I are going to be recording Promoter 101 live at Canadian Music Week on April 19th in Toronto. Next Wednesday, April 19th at 2.40 p.m., we'll be in the Canadian Music Week 2017 in Toronto, Canada. We're bringing the full podcast for a live recording. We've got Golden Voices Elliot Lefko and United Talent Agency's Jack Ross. We'll have some Q&A going on and a few special other surprises. And if you missed us live during our world tour, don't worry. We're going to be doing more of this in the fall. We hope to see you out there once the conference season resumes after the summer. And if you want to see us, tell your university bookers and your conference organizers to bring the Promoter 101 podcast to town for a live taping. Hi, this is Jason Miller from Live Nation, SVP of International and Emerging Markets. You are on Promoter 101. It's time for the news of the week. We lost the great Don Rickles this past week. He was 90 years old. Dave Brooks reported this week on the acquisition of New York's Webster Hall. AG and Brooklyn Sports Entertainment partnered to buy the 1,500-cap room from the Ballinger family. With the AG acquisition of Bowery Presents earlier this year, this puts the guys at Bowery back in charge of booking that room, where they had an exclusive buyer relationship for years until it ended in March 2014. Really curious what's going to happen with Heath Miller. I love him. I think he's done an amazing job bringing that room along in the last couple of years. So I hope this works out in a good place for him overall. I think it's a brilliant move for AEG to be moving into that space. They need a room of that size in New York. It's going to be a, a great feeder to have a relationship with some of those artists in New York when they want to go up and play Nassau or Barclays later down the road. Yeah, I, the combination of AEG 
with the Madison House partnership and Bowery now. I mean, they are a blockbuster in that market. And when you put together the festivals those guys have in that market now, they have really stepped up their game in New York big time. They came to play. Pulsar reports that Live Nation's stock hit a new high this week, citing the Goldman Sachs note to clients written the same day by analyst Drew Bors, giving Live Nation stock a buy rating. On April 5th, Live Nation stock ended the trading day at an all-time high of 31.34 per share. These guys are on the move. Shows strength in the industry. Bodes well for everybody. Polestar also reported this week that Topher Christensen of T Presents is moving to Madison, Wisconsin as the talent buyer for the Orpheum Theater, working there to Live Nation's Dan Kimmer. Topher was the buyer for New York's BB Kings and Blue Note before starting T Presents. You know, Dan, I was digging around for the news today, and I found out that Madison-based Frank Productions and Topher actually have a little bit of a history. T Presents was putting together a deal for a development company for a uh, theater in Madison that was ultimately pulled, and it's now in the hands of the Frank Productions. And they're breaking ground in that theater next year. In an article in the Isthmus, Topher wrote that he, quote, felt like he got franked. Are we going to be using that as a verb now, Dan? I like that. You know, the Franks brothers are on the move and Madison is their town. And with the partnership of the Majestic Boys with Matt and Scott Leslie is just genius. I don't know that Topher plays with the same firepower as the Franks in that market. Live Nation's going to have his back there, but I don't know that he's got the power of a Mary Claire. I agree. Big shoes to fill there. More lineup announcements this week. San Francisco's Outside Lands announced its headliners, including Metallica, The Who, Gorillaz, Lord, and A Tribe Called Quest. You know, that lineup is thick if you keep going, but not only is it an amazing lineup, but The Who on a festival is an insanely cool thing. And don't forget, the Metallica is hometown boys in the Bay. So that is a big, big deal, Luke. So Huffington Post reported this week that Barry Manilow has come out. And I think this might be news to pretty much no one. The timing on this is kind of interesting, don't you think? I have no comment. A judge has set a date for Suge Knight's murder trial for this coming January. So he's been serving time all along waiting for this trial, and that's about three years now. It's kind of disturbing just in general that the legal process works that long, that he's not able to bail himself out and he's got to stand trial waiting, whether he's guilty or not. And if he's not guilty, that's a real issue. You know what? I'm not saying our justice system is perfect. I'm not saying you should spend three years you know, awaiting a trial in jail, but I'm totally fine that this one particular individual and Suge Knight is spending three years in jail for awaiting uh, trial for murder because there's video evidence, in fact, that he literally murdered a guy. So there's video evidence out there of Suge Knight running somebody over with his car. The guy is fine behind bars. You know, I think people might have Suge Knight all wrong. I think it's probably just bad PR and he's probably just a teddy bear. I'm sure. I'm sure he didn't get hugged enough as a kid, too, Dan. <laughs> you better hope he never gets thrilled, buddy. And that's a wrap for the news. Hey, it's Elliot Lesko, promoter from Golden Voice in Los Angeles. And I'll be talking to Dan, promoter 101 from Canadian Music Week on April 19th. So uh, sharpen your skates and smell the ice. We'll be rocking on that day. It wouldn't be promoter 101 without the tweets of the week. Let's see. What Dan said this week on Twitter, if you're not following him, Dan is at the Jew on Twitter. Saying no can be magical. Just wish I had the power to actually say no from time to time. When a venue settlement sheet is so badly designed, reading it becomes a scavenger hunt. Yeah, you kind of have to wonder sometimes when you're mapping a settlement sheet out the same way you're mapping your way across Disneyland, what the venue GM was on when he designed his settlement sheet. When an agent brings a cheaper support than you budgeted for, 
and wants to roll the money into the headliner instead of reducing the split point. Like suddenly the headliner is worth an extra $500. I don't think so. When your venue GN sends an alarming email that will affect the next day presale, but will not answer his phone. Trying to give me a heart attack? Answer your phone if you're going to send an email like this. Please. When an agent only offers you Salt Lake and or Albuquerque on a tour, you just know where you stand with them. Maybe it's just a tribute to how good my marketing team is, because selling these two towns is a fight every time. When a venue gives you a hold, and then when you go to confirm, they tell you that the dates in front of you are unchallengeable. This seems like something you should have mentioned when you sent the holds in the first place. Kind time drives the manager insane. Huh, Luke? It absolutely does. Thanks a lot to some friends in the Pacific Northwest. Here's something of a bad promoter 101, or maybe a venue 101. This is submitted by Rick Hansen, who's the director of booking at the Historic Theater Group in Minneapolis. When a venue has to hear about a venue switch of a show from the agent because the promoter is too afraid to tell the original venue himself. So I talked to Rick about this after he sent it. It turns out he got to keep the deposit anyway, so that wimpy promoter should have just sent him a note saying, hey, date's not happening, dude, but keep the money. Like he wasn't going to anyway. When you get specs on a VIP lift package demanding the best seats in the house weeks after the show has been on sale to the public. Yeah, this one scared the shit out of me. When you need to hold 50 tickets and you've already sold all of the good seats and the act is shocked, what can you do to fix it? I want to thank some awesome box office staff that uh, helped us figure this out this week because it's an impossible fight. Before we move on, I wanted to point out that Emporium is a volume business, so the majority of our events sail by without any issues. But because I'm a partner at the firm, anything that's a major issue comes across my desk, or I'm just looped in on it. So the tweets come from things like that. Anything something's a little out of the normal, I happen to see it. But for the most part, almost everyone we work with is upstanding and awesome and in doing a job in the best way they know how. And please note that the tweets are the exception of the rule, and we're making jokes of the industry and pointing out the fucked up things. But at the end of the day, almost everyone we deal with is above board and trying to do the best job they can to put on good entertainment. That does it for Promoter 101 Tweets of the Week. It's Barry Dickens from ITB, and I'm on Promoter 101. This week's feature interview was recorded live as a part of the ILMC conference in London, featuring X-Ray Talent's Steve Strange. Promoter 101, we're at ILMC, and I'm joining the suite with Steve Strange from X-Ray Touring. Thank you so much for taking time to be here. Oh, my pleasure. So when it comes to some of the cooler bands in the UK, they seem to quite often be attached to your name. Got quite the ear for talent. Oh, thanks. It's been over 25 years of the process now, so it's been a good run. Right now, who are uh, some of the current acts you're working with? Well, obviously, we, we just went and sailed with Eminem this morning in Glasgow, so that's one of the current ones. We've got a full world tour sold out uh, Acts North America with Coldplay, so that's the starts in the Asia uh, in a couple of weeks' time. We broke some serious records with that. We've got. Um, Chance the Rapper headlining uh, Wireless Festival this summer. You know, we've got a whole bunch of different stuff going out. It's a you very guys book all over the world except North America. Yeah, it's North America. Well, in, in general, you know, that's generally what I do. You know, on occasions you may just get Europe. In certain cases, like them Crooked Vultures, it's split three ways between William Morris and myself where they get, because Russell looks after Dave Grohl, he gets to book Europe, WME in America, book North America, and I get the other international markets, such as the Pacific Rim and 
whatever else. But it was a project. It was the only sort of exception to that rule because it was a it was a, a project with Josh Homme from Queens of Stone Age, Dave Grohl from Foo Fighters, uh, John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin, and Alan Johannes. So you pretty know, cool fucking band. It yeah. was it was it, it was, well, a, few, well, it was a few years again? ago now. It was a few years ago, but. You know, who knows whether they'll make a, another another album, but hopefully they will at some point. But yeah, it's all good. Also, on top of that, you know, we've got Queens of the Stone Age uh, starting their run in uh, Australia, which is the start of their world tour with um, with their new album and new single. And we're headlining Splendor in the Grass. They're playing Fuji Rock. You know, we're doing it. some other Australian and New Zealand cities as well. And um, so that kicks off that with a planned European tour, which we've got on hold for the autumn. The thought of going into North America as an agency ever crossed your guys' mind? Not really. A lot of the agencies in the States have, have already got, you know, all the agents work for other people. So it's not really something that we've ever endeavored to try. Uh, and it's, it's too big a market by itself to try to begin to. Okay, are there agencies, though, that you trade back and forth with bands that you have relationships with? Well, various. You know, I work quite a lot with Paradigm. We work quite a lot with, with Robbie Fraser at um, WME. He shares of quite a few of my artists, whether it be Queens of the Stone Age, whether it be Eagles of Death Metal, Refused, Echo and the Bunnymen, whatever else. But, yeah, no, I, you know, I, I share the world with Marty Diamond and Coldplay. He does North America and you know canada and u.s you are jason c miller's favorite person at the moment from my understanding he was uh, doing the podcast the other day was very happy with how those shows are selling oh yes it's going very very good it's amazing how big that act has gotten it's really incredible it's been a, a very 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 nice organic build as well they got big very quickly don't get me wrong but but they've sustained just, it just to sustain it they're a very consistent band you know both musically and creatively you know they're amazing when you get big enough to play the halftime at the Super Bowl, certainly carries some weight. <laughs> I'm one of the very few English acts that's played it as well, so it's it's. Um, it was what the Stones did it, McCartney did it, and that's yeah. That's well, like the, apart from you know the top, the two well, big ones. Those guys had to put a few more years in before they got invited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah, did a record time. I was I was at it too. Me and Jason are Denver fans, and it was the week before it was the week of Polestar, so I we went in up, for it. I ended up on a box with. Um, John Travolta and the and the okay uh, you win <laughs> your and, uh, story's better than ours and, and the, the the governor of, of of Colorado who was very very happy that day <laughs> yeah we were biting our nails all the way through that one that was a watching the clock run and run and run it was like I don't think either one of us cared about the halftime show as much as the, running the clock out as soon as possible like, <laughs> come on don't screw this up now that was a fun day that was indeed so, yeah, obviously good things happening with them, but you don't start out booking Coldplay. How did you get to this world that is seemingly you're on top of at the moment? Well, I was a musician. for I was a drummer for quite a few years before I, I ended up being a, a, an agent. Well, the band I was in got a record deal. We moved across to the UK because we got a record deal. I never really looked back from that. You know, like I, I sort of got very intrigued with the other side of the business as well. As the band was slowly starting to fall apart, I then I joined another act called Fastway with uh, Fast Eddie Clark, who was is the only surviving member out of the original Motorhead that's left. Oh so, wow! 
as soon as that... So if you're playing guys like that, you must have had some chops. Well, I can play, yeah. <laughs> I can certainly play. From that, I you know, had a friend that was, that was working at an agency called Braun at the time. He uh, just says, do you want to come in and give this a go? And the live side of the business was always my most fun part of the, the business. I was intrigued by the touring aspect and whatever. So I come in and I started building up a roster and... Then I, I went back to Ireland for a little while. I didn't, you know, the first time around, sustaining the financial aspect of it was hard. So I had to go and rethink my strategy a little. So I moved back to Ireland and promoted there for a year. At the, at the, and I promoted the Limelight in Belfast and done Irish tours with, you know, like a little collective of different other promoters in Dublin. You know, I, wor- I worked along with uh, with MCD at the time. Very cool. Now, some of the first acts that you booked that you were most intrigued by? We'd done quite a few at that time. We'd done the Lemonheads on the way up. Oh, cool. Alice in Chains was another act that we'd done on the way up. You know, acts of the time that were doing well, things like Senseless Things and Pop Will Eat Itself, they were all all acts that, you know, that I'd looked after at the time. Although they were all hot, current. How big did Pop Will Eat Itself get in the UK, as far as venue size? I didn't follow what they were doing in the UK as much because I was in Ireland at the time. Okay. But I think that they got to Brixton level at one okay. point, you know. So much bigger than they were in the States. Yeah, I'd done, the, you know, bands like the Boo Radleys and, and whatever else, which we just before they broke, you know, the big time. But both of their shows sold out, and it, it made my initial connection with my now partner in, in, in X-Ray Touring, Jeff Kraft, who we remain friends throughout that period and right to present day. You know, Jeff's been a, a man that I've known for, oh, God, 25 years. So I was talking to Steve Ferguson, who books a lot of UK acts in the States, about signing a bunch of bands without ever hearing them live just picking up on the buzz and liking the music because you work with a lot of bands from different parts of the world including the US do you sign a lot of acts before you've ever seen them I have done previously but, but I spent quite a lot of time in America and I've got a house in Los Angeles and I do tend to get a chance to see a lot more acts now before I get a chance to sign them and even in the early days with South by Southwest and whatever else it give people like myself an opportunity to, to be able to go and check things out before you actually start getting involved with them, you know, in a creative sense. So is that just a shooting gallery for you when you go to South By? All of these bands that have buzz in America, they're, all the American agents have already signed them usually if they're there, but a lot of them are probably open for it here. It wasn't like that in the day, you know, like it's... I find South by Southwest has changed a lot in its demographic. It's now become a big corporate circus now many of the shows are branded most of the business is already done as you say and i don't feel it it has the growing potential the organic early day growing potential that it used to but then again the business has changed a lot in those 15 years you know with that said are you still going uh, i'm not going this year the la- i went two years ago i tend to go to more the different things i would go to coachella's and whatever else this this time and you know, I, I like to spend first couple of months of the year in, in Los Angeles as well, you know, so it gives me a chance to spend a bit of time in my own house, get to chill out a little bit in the first couple of weeks of the year. And then a lot of my managers are, are these days are Los Angeles based. Or if they're not Los Angeles based, 
generally within that couple of months, a majority of them would end up in LA on business or, or over for the Grammys or whatever in that period. So you, you always get a chance to sit down and work out what you're going to do. So I sometimes tie in a New York trip on the way there or the way back, but I didn't Interesting. do it do this time. Do you get involved in like the Polestar Live conference when it's in LA? Because um, it's like right there. It is right there, but I went this year. I, I, I have a lot of love for the Polestar people. I've been nominated for, I think, 12 years in a row now. International Agent of the Year. Yeah, you know, you never get a chance to win that because a lot of the people that attend the conference are U.S. talent buyers, and they don't know who X-Ray Touring are because we're an international agency. So, But they will know the CAAs, the Paradigms. They will know the WME people. So they tend to go with what they know. And they, you know, when they're ticking their boxes on their voting sheets, they will vote for the companies that they know. That's no disrespect. It's just... No, it makes sense. I mean, I've never... Life, been, you know. I've never won an Arthur. I get it. <laughs> I've won two now over the years. You know, I won it last year. Second was, page, best agent in the world? Yeah. <laughs> That's the best. I love that. It's not the agent well, of the year. It's the second best well, agent I hope, of the I hope year. I'm not the second. I hope I wasn't voted the second. But... <laughs> But I, well, love, I love that that's how they, they nominate the category, because when they started it, the conference, he was an agent, and he automatically in his head was the best agent. So everybody else, the best you could do was second best agent of the year. <laughs> I love that they have best assistant award. I think that's oh, yeah, such absolutely. an important yeah, award. There's a lot of really good people that are on that list every year, people that deserve to be there. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I fully back you up on that. Yeah, I wish Polestar would add that one in particular, Gary Smith. I think well, it's, a I think cool it's just too broad an award ceremony. They run out of time to put things in. You know, the, 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 the award ceremony itself is like two hours long and it's pretty major categories in every, you know, like in, in every sense. What I love about the, the Arthur Awards, it's a bit more homegrown, you know, as the categories rather than having, you know, the, the best medium-ranged venue the best because Polestar covers a lot more categories right you know and I think because it has to it has to go into venues has to go into festivals they do cover like and they've cut out of quite a few there's no longer a ticketing award at Polestar and there's no longer well, an it had to because the awards were just going on yeah. for so bloody long yeah there's was, there's no longer an A&R award which I guess they're no record company so why would you need an A&R <laughs> yes they should give that to Amazon <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Bezos now wins the A&R the Hero Award Ah, it's, it's unfair. There's a lot of good A&R people around. No, there are, and they should be recognized. Some of the labels that are still around are very helpful. I think Atlantic is probably one of the better, where we constantly get them calling, saying, what do we need? What can they do? Which yeah. you don't hear that much. And somebody brought up a word I hadn't heard forever was ticket buy, which I hadn't heard forever from a label. No, it's very rare. <laughs> I mean, they only bought two, but they bought tickets. Well, and it was two more than everyone else buys. But He's <laughs> like, wow, I remember that word. <laughs> probably could just put them on the list. Probably not that big of a deal. So it's a different world over here, but you get to play in both sides of it. So you get to see how the U.S. business works. Obviously, yeah. if you're over that often. And you know, like I get to know most like a lot of the talent buyers and a lot of the people at the top of the, their game in the industry over there. So it's it's good. You know, it's nice to have that relationship and have a bit more of an international, more broader sort of spectrum in your head. You know. So you're in L.A. I assume you're talking about like Paul Tillette. Yeah, I know Paul. I know a lot of the guys from mentioning any names in particular at Live Nation. I know the AEG people over there, you know, like, you know, there's a lot of the people that I, I would know. Obviously, you know, the Bill Silvers of this world as well. And, a good mentor you know, of mine. Yeah, he's a wonderful man. You know, I've, I've known him for 
I don't know, 20 plus years. And, um, well, it's good, you know, as I say, a lot of my managers are Los Angeles based, so, you know, not all of them, but, you know, quite a few these days. Because if you spend more time in L.A., you end up picking up L.A. talent. You know, it's just, it's just, as you said, you know, it's, it's just the way it goes. You pick up U.S. talent, you know, via finding out about it in L.A. Because you get to hear things earlier. So our audience is about 90% North America. With that said, the agents and managers listening and artists, if you're a U.S. act and you're trying to tour internationally and you're having success not just a garage band what are the steps to try to break into the uk well usually you know when a band breaks in america you know it does send shockwaves especially into europe you know with the internet now even more yes exactly because it becomes a global world because of it very much you know that to say everything technically is international these days because of the the internet and it's, it's, it's like anything else i still think that you know that you have to allow a story to come in you build it up from the ground upwards you bring them in and you do the smaller shows it depends how far along their profile is before they come you know it's just this has got to be financially an expensive trip for a U.S. band to make the first time over. It can be, yeah. In fact, it usually is, but it's an investment that they need to make for their, their long-term international uh, strategy. You know, it's they have to do it. There's not really any other ways that you can do or you can bring someone in or, or you can have them being special guests to someone that they maybe they're friends with, someone that they're compatible with, and get them in front of a much bigger audience. And hope that the the London show from the the headline sells out, where you can add a little club show or something like that, just to give them their own show as well. You know, we bring quite a lot of um, smaller acts into the UK. We just had a band called Big Thief touring last year with uh, with M Ward over here. They're signed to Saddle Creek. They're a great band. You know, very organic style band. We brought them over on in January. They ended up selling out two Lexingtons. You know, just today the, the gap was 400 tickets uh, over the two shows and well attended regional shows as well. Not not a big tour, but four or five different markets. And we've done a couple in, in Europe, which again, you know, we scaled it down to like 150 people, to 200 capacity venues. They all worked out good. We've got them coming back now to play festivals in August. We've got them supporting Connor Roberts, aka Bright Eyes, you know. So, you know, he's a great guy and, um, He's also a big fan of their music, so it made sense for them to come in and do that run because they were playing the likes of the Green Man Festival and some other similar events in that time period. So it was an easy marriage to, 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 to create. And um, I think, you know, generally you just have to get out there and you just have to persevere. Bringing X over to play festivals for the first time, is that a begging process or trading horses to get them on some of these festivals? Because the season here is amazing. It's a bit of both, really. I think, you know, there, there has to be some, if your prediction, if you've got strong predictions that an act is going to benefit from it. I personally think bringing an act over that's completely unknown and nothing is happening around it at that time to do a festival can be a waste of time, you know, because ultimately festivals are, the problem with the festival is no, no one has actually in, in, in that audience has got a conscience as such, because they'll go wherever they want, you know, and, and, and within that day, they'll go and, you know, and they'll maybe watch that and watch for five, ten minutes and give someone a chance, but it's a free flow of people. But Which is people the hope when you're at a festival, right, that they move around But I think, you know, constantly. there needs to be a purpose to be there, you know, and... Whether that's having a buzz before you, when it's being booked, or whether you you know you send the music to the festival booker, 
he buys into your concept and your and, and your thought process, you know. Or less, sometimes you need, need, may need a nudge and a push, <laughs> you know. But I imagine you do enough business with those guys that everyone's yeah, of course. But you know, it's like anything else. You don't like to if something is underdeveloped, it doesn't benefit either the festival promoter or the act because the act can come in, play in front of forty people in a tent, and they've travelled all the way from bumfuck Arizona to play there and sold two and, t-shirts and, a, and it can be a very soul destroying situation because they'll sit and think the time the energy the money everything that has gone into that trip to play in front of 30 people without having anything developed you know you can't put the cart before the horse it just and getting them to come back would be next to impossible after that and then it, you actually do you make your own obstacles for yourself you know so the long-term thinking on that's got to play into all those decisions. I think you need to build things a little before you present them in a situation like that. Excellent. Hey, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on Promoter 101 today. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. Thank you very much. If you didn't know before, you know it now. Steve Strange is a major player on the international music scene, and he's got the Midas touch. Hi, this is Jack Ross from UTA. I'm going to be at CMW, live on stage with Steiny for Promoter 101. Our second feature this week is a marketing and branding expert making his home at the L.A. Paradigm office. Join me for my one-on-one with Brandon R. Frankel. We're at South by Southwest, Promoter 101. We've got the marketing genius, Brandon Frankel, in the room from Paradigm. What's up, brother? Hey, buddy. Thanks for taking time out of your South by to come hang out with me. For you? I got you, bro. So it's the thing now. All the major agencies need to have marketing people involved with the act, which I think is a great add-on service. And originally, I was a little against it. At first, it was just CAA, and then it was William Morris and CAA. And now everybody seems to have it. But everybody's getting in our business and how we're marketing our shows. But now I see the genius in it. You guys know how the act sells best because you're marketing it everywhere. Yeah. I mean, the way that I think we approach it at Paradigm and previously before that at Windish, and yes, I was at CAA before that as well, we try to come at it as a symbiotic relationship. You guys know your markets. We know our clients. How do we work together to synergize and make the most out of every dollar that we have? So it's not that, you know, we don't appreciate what you guys suggest, but at some point, you know, some dollars can be moved into digital spend that we can promote via our socials. We can boost posts. We want to help amplify. We don't want to dictate. It should be an open dialogue. Originally, it seemed like we want to see your grids. We want to see what you're doing. And it was like, it's like a tick account thing. It was like, we just were checking a box. Paper pushing. Maybe. And it was an extra step. And I originally thought that because it was like, suddenly we've got one more boss now. One more person to tell us how to do this. But, and I think some of it was that. But I think it's become streamlined. And as all the agencies have gotten, it's, it's developed into a real role of, you know, it's working everywhere. Your show's a little softer, and maybe it's because you guys aren't doing the digital in this platform that we're doing in most of the other markets that are moving tickets better. Or, you know what, this actually sells with print, and you guys don't have that. We know it's terrestrial, but it actually works. And I'm hearing those kind of ideas coming from the marketing departments, and it's things where it's like, this act in particular, we know how to sell better than you do because we've got all the ad plans and we've got the ticket counts. This is what you're missing that those guys have. And I think that that's awesome. That's a service that you guys are actually offering not only the acts, but to the promoters because you're protecting our investment with that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you guys are putting money on the line. You're risking money. And so we should act as such and respect that. So we're trying to provide service and value instead of just nitpicking and crapping on stuff. Uh, It should be, hey, 
if we get the band to do these phoners, like, would that help you? Hey, can we get, you know, signed prize packs? Can we do meet and greets? Can we, you know, link up with Pitchfork and do some sort of contest or a flyaway, work with Sirius XM and do something cool? We're trying to make it where your job's easier because the goal for everybody is to make money and to sell shows out and have the most fans in the room that can see our clients. And if you don't do that, you're really not adding value. Okay, so you oversee in a massive number of acts, this huge roster, right? It's mostly the windish house of acts, right? It's like, even though you're now Paradigm, you're overseeing mainly that part of the roster, right? Yeah, so I mean, for branding and marketing, essentially the way that we're doing it now, and everything's kind of a work in progress. And the great thing about the way that Paradigm, Windish, and Aim Only came together was piece by piece by piece over time. So it wasn't just like throw deep end of the pool and hope everyone swims together. It was a gradual process. So while we all are kind of looking after our respective stuff we were previously, there's a lot of ebb and flow. So while you know it used to be myself on an island doing everything for branding and marketing, we brought in Katie Novak that worked with me at CAA, who's a badass, and then we can split stuff up. And then now that we have the Paradigm folks on our team, there's more people. So with that, certain people have certain styles, certain people love certain genres, certain people get along with certain agents. So as it continues, things will kind of move around. And Path of least resistance kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, and then I think the ultimate goal for Paradigm is one for all and all for one. It's not mine or whatever, it's ours. So whoever can get the best job done for the client should go get it done. And that's the way that it should be because we just want to win. Well, Paradigm certainly has an interesting vibe going on right now. There's cool on the next level. And from Jonathan Levine and Marty on down, there's a tone from Tom. It's a vibe of cool and not necessarily personally. It's just the acts. They have a high level of whatever genre it is. They're cool acts. Whether it's the Milk Carton Kids or Coldplay, it's cool stuff. And obviously the Windish roster, in the same time Coda, all reek of cool. If there was a brand in place, you guys have certainly cornered the market on that. Yeah, I mean, I worked at Atlantic Records for about seven years and eventually ended up in artist development, which was tour marketing. And I got to work with pretty much every agency. The one agent that I really gravitated towards was Tom, just because I was really obsessed with his roster. I had loved Diplo since like 2002. They had Justice, they had Licky Lee, just an epic roster of things that might not be like main pop everywhere. But to me, I was like, this is my shit. And so when I was at Atlantic and I was trying to get out, you know, I dealt with Marty, I dealt with Jackie Nailpant, I dealt with all sorts of agents. And I just really dug the Windish roster. So I hit him up when I was trying to leave and I was like, dude, I'm obsessed with what you're doing. And it was like a couple years old startup. He had like maybe seven or eight staff. And I'm like, you should start a marketing department. And he's like, well, how would I pay for that? Like, we're new. I'm like, fuck. So he was like, you know, this isn't a no. It's a let's keep talking over time. And so I just felt the vibe. And I'm like, this is cool. I was always into stuff that like wasn't really known at the time. And I went to CAA. And they have, you know, massive roster. You were at the Nashville office, right? Yeah, I was out of Nashville, but reported to LA, which was interesting. But it's just the greatest group of A&R between Paradigm, AM Only, CODA and Windish that I've ever seen in my life. You know, Tom 
found Lord early, early, early off SoundCloud. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, Alt-J, I think he signed when they were playing in front of like 20 people. He believes in it and then goes and gets it. Marty, I mean, he's had Coldplay forever. Started Lilith Fair. Like, these are people that are visionaries. Like, Chip Pooper, rest in peace. Like, the dude, they're just visionaries. They hear something. They love music. We love music. I would stay at Tom's house when I would be in L.A., and he'd be sitting up till like 2 a.m., listening to every SoundCloud link that anyone sent him. And a lot of agents will not do that. And Tom just literally loves music. And that gets me pumped because I love music. So we all will scout for stuff. We'll hear something cool. We'll pass it around. And then we sign stuff early, early, early. It's not about us poaching people from other agencies when they're developed. I think that's really not the greatest. And it's a byproduct of the industry and it's a business, but we go and we find stuff early and we develop it. And those things that were not once like in my world for branding, like sponsorable stuff because it's not mainstream, that is the mainstream now. So it's pretty cool to watch how like the indie cool stuff is now becoming pop. Okay, now branding's gotta be something where you really know the act well, because some acts get offended by some things you couldn't take a beer sponsorship to some acts that may be AA. Or like we have a Mormon client. And so like no caffeine, no alcohol, you know. We... No fun. Yeah. He's a great kid. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Are you talking about David Archuleta? Yeah, David Archuleta. We're doing most of that tour. Love the kid. He's got great new music. Love Todd great. Walker. He used to work for Todd Walker. I mean, essentially, like what I like to do is study up on the client. We do a lot of research. We have a ton of clients, but you know, like I sort of touched on earlier, we have now a team of people that do branding. So each of us has rosters that we look after while we kind of like blur and merge and try to help each other. And it's a team and we're like getting intel and reporting it back. I like to ask clients when I meet with them or we are emailing or we have a phone call. I'm like, it would really help me if you can put together a list or a Google doc or whatever of the things that you love and that could be everything from candy to clothes designers tech what kind of phone do you use any causes that you're close to so the things that are going to be a natural yeah like what we try and i try to do is pair people together organically which i know is a buzzword and millennial and all that stuff but basically like the best deals and branding come when it's symbiotic and not parasitic. I don't like to do transactional deals. We're trying to build relationships. And when an artist really doesn't feel something, you can tell. And the fans, especially in our world, are very astute to bullshit. And they can smell when they're being sold to. And if it's something that a client actually loves, like a candy that they've been obsessed with since a child, which we just did a deal for a client to have her childhood favorite candy sponsor her tour. It's a dream come true for her. The best partnerships come, and it should be a partnership, when each side is actually enjoying each other and believes in it. So you actually want to promote it. So you go above and beyond. Maybe you had to do three tweets, you do five. You're really enthusiastic. It doesn't come off inauthentic. And then it doesn't feel like they're being sold to as a consumer because that artist actually likes that thing. There's lifestyle connection there. Yeah, so it's supposed to be natural and real. And sure, you know, some people go for money grabs and they'll do stuff that they may be so-so on. 
but a lot of what we do, we pass on way more deals than we confirm and we'll tell our clients, I don't think you should do this, it's a bad look or you don't wear this shoe, so shouldn't we wait to talk to the fans company that you love? Like That's the kind of stuff that we try to do for our clients and it could be tricky because there's a lot of clients, but we're really good at like getting information, digesting information and tracking it all. And we use that as a resource to try to go and get those opportunities for our clients. And that's not to say that we're gonna put blinders on and not focus outside of that, but we try to hyper-target the things that they actually love. When you're doing sponsorship and branding, are those deals related to North America, or is, are those world deals as the acts are touring globally? I mean, it really depends. You know, we rep certain clients for certain territories. So if we rep a client for just North and South America, then that's usually where we'll work for them. Some people we rep in North and South America and Australia, uh, North and South America, and you know wherever. Uh, Coda, who we have as a great partner, does the UK and Europe, and so that's great. But if you know Young Lean, we did a Calvin Klein campaign for. He was in there with like Bella Hadid and Kate Moss, which is really great because he's a normal-looking dude with the green hair in a fashion campaign that usually is filled with models that are not normal and probably make the mass consumers feel like crap because they're never going to be them. We put someone who is relatable in a massive global campaign. And so while we don't rep him in certain territories, it's a global deal so we can do that. And that ended up in, I was in Russia and I'm in the fanciest mall in Moscow and I look up and I see the young lean banner hanging and I'm just like this is epic <laughs> I did that <laughs> I was, I was like so this cool. is amazing but yeah so I mean it really depends but um, you know I've been doing a lot of stuff with Asia um, I just got back from India I spoke at ADE Mumbai and the amount of really cool buyers that are trying to do things there with such a rabid fan base that are being so underserved is really exciting for me because I want to be doing stuff globally like our goal is global. Like if we rep someone at Paradigm, we really hope that Coda does as well so that we can have worldwide services, everyone's communicating, makes it so much easier to book, you know everyone's schedules. So, I mean, global's the goal. Did Coda rebrand? Coda, they're so established in Europe mm -hmm. that it doesn't really make sense for them to interject the Paradigm name, I think. It has such a reputation. It's got clout. So they're keeping... Not that Windish didn't. No. I mean, I love Windish. I'll claim it till I die. But Coda has developed such a great thing over there that they need to keep doing their thing. And so we work together. Everything's in a combined system. It's really cool to it's have. It's one company, though. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually surprised that UTA gave up the agency group name in the UK because it was such a developed brand. So I would have thought at least possibly in Canada too, but I would have thought they would have done UTA slash tag in Canada or like slowly rebranded, but they clearly had or a like different vision. WME slash IMG. Like. Yeah, what, whatever. But it was like, it was a big brand they walked away from. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know. So I get leaving code on the table. That makes Yeah, sense. so, you know, when we were first talking about this paradigm deal, of course, you know, as a branding person, a marketing person, like, wanting to work at a company for so long and being so proud of where you work, you're like getting a little nervous and sad and like, oh no, what's gonna happen when you lose your brand identity? But 
I mean, if we were to do a deal with any company on the planet and, you know, Tom was approached by every major agency and could have done a deal with CAA, whoever, Paradigm and us always got along, like-minded people, nice people, work hard. We just want to be nice and we want to win. So it just felt right. And, you know, people tried to poke holes through us. You know, big agencies would take meetings with their clients and say, like, Windish has too many clients. And then once we fixed some of that, then it was, Windish doesn't have TV and film. Every time they just tried to poke holes through us. So Tom, being the smart guy he is, was like, you know what? I really love these people. We get along. We work together. We help each other. I feel like we can help each other and make this into the best agency in the world. So if you can't beat them, join them. And if you're going to join them, don't go with a bunch of jerks. And now you have film and TV. We got film TV. We got books. We got finance that does content creation and finances films. We've got TV lit. We've got digital. We got all sorts of crazy stuff. You've got the resources of yeah. minds like Jonathan Levine and Fred and Dan and Marty, Larry Webman, Paul all just Morris. right there. I and mean, there's and... Lee Anderson. There's Sam Hunt. Like We got some of the ballerest people in the business and it's really exciting. It's pretty impressive. And let's um, talk about when you're pitching an artist on branding, there's got to be critical mass with the size of your roster where brands are now coming to you guys instead of searching them out. Yeah, I mean, there's incoming and outgoing. There's a lot of both. We get a ton of stuff every day that's like, hey, we have this project. Who do you have that's female that fits this demo that is in this budget range? Go. And then you get, you know, who do you have that wants to work in this fashion world? And then also us going and beating down doors, finding contacts. You know, we have a ton of contacts, but there's new brands popping up all the time. And finding the money guy that writes checks that does branding is yeah, sometimes or, a little bit of work. Yeah, or like people fire their agencies. Some companies have multiple agencies for multiple pieces of their business. Um, like, you know, Samsung, Google, any of these major brands have multiple agencies some handle their digital some handle their experiential some handle the campaigns so you have to keep learning who does what and who the players are and their role and people shift around and you know there's a lot of that so it's really been challenging but exciting because i'm add as hell and <laughs> i and i like to be over stimulated than under stimulated so yeah, having to constantly keep myself on my toes is kind of a good thing, but it can be challenging. So, you know, if a client comes to us and it's like, this is my dream, I really want to do this, like it's really important to me, how can we make this happen? We're going out and we're doing everything within our power to try to make that happen or start to plant seeds to develop a relationship where they feel attached to the artist, they understand that they're going to get what they want out of doing a deal and you know i put one of our clients in the room with google because i'm so confident in the way he handles himself and he's really smart he's super talented and you can't always put people in a room without being there or having someone helping to guide the conversation because you don't know how it's going to go but i have a ton of clients that we put them in a room with someone and they fall in love and then there's an emotional attachment and people want them to win. So we have like all these different approaches to how we handle it, but it's definitely a 
a crazy changing world out there in the brand landscape. There's some artists that are just absolutely against the concept of branding and sponsorship completely regardless of the brand. Yeah. I mean, you know, we have artists like Nicholas Jar, who I'm obsessed with, that that's not for him. And Caribou, love. They will not even accept a corporate gift. They wear all plain clothes on stage. That's who they are. And I have all the respect in the world for people like that. Because so they're literally just passing on cash because of their ethics. Yeah. And don't. I mean, that to me is like artistry. When you don't do something just for money because it's really not who you are and it's against your brand, I don't want you to take the money. We make money off them making money. We encourage people a lot not to take the money. Well, you're building careers. Yeah, we want to build a career. We're not going for like sprint. We want to develop artists into superstars that can sustain their careers forever and keep making their art for people that want to hear it. And if we start doing stupid moves and putting people in shoe commercials where they don't make sense and hate the shoe, or a Kia commercial, like no offense to Kia, but like if it's an artist that always wears Chanel and stuff like that, it just doesn't make sense. And then you're kind of like confusing the brand and there's no consistent tone. And it's just not conducive to building an artist. And we're trying to develop artists. That's our job. That's what we do. And the artists are brands within themselves. Yeah. So, you know, I'll tell that to artists and I'm like, don't take this wrong, but like, you are a brand, you are a product, and you need to remember like Procter & Gamble and all these companies are meticulous with how they present their brand. What is their tone online? Like, how is the aesthetic? Like, artists like Odessa and Flume and so many of our clients, they're so Alt-J, like crazy about the art and consistency, and it's really awesome because the second you see it, you know it's them. It's beautiful. As a marketing and branding person, I just love that. The moments of entourage flashing in my head. Apple, McDonald's, BMW, Vincent Chase. <laughs> yeah. The good thing is, is, you know, a lot of people go into those meetings with clients and they cast the room with like characters that fit roles but will never work on a project and it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. We don't go in with like the PowerPoint and the dog and pony and there's not fluff. We don't overpromise. We make statements and observances and comments and suggestions and take feedback and we try to work together to reach goals. So the artist and the brand are both happy with the deal yeah, and they, they don't I mean, feel like you didn't deliver. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the way I think about it, it's like any buyer. If you burn a buyer on one project, you might've just screwed your entire roster. And so I'm not in the business of trying to like land grab and screw a buyer over on behalf of one deal when I'm going to screw a fuck ton of other clients. That's yeah. not fair and it's not fair to brands and that's not who Paradigm or Windish was. That's not what we do. So we have a reputation where people like to call us early or first and hopefully last because they know that we're gonna do like genuine symbiotic deals. So how are you finding time to oversee the marketing on your roster and deal with all the branding simultaneously? It seems like you'd never sleep. Well, once we started to merge over, we decided like I'm going to spend more time making money and doing this branding thing, which... So you're overseeing the branding more and gave up some of the marketing? Yeah. 
But, you know, we got Katie and a slew of other people that are handling it. Yeah, it's not that it hasn't gone undone. Yeah, no, it's definitely alive and growing and kicking and crushing. Like, super proud of what we built. It's awesome. So are you overseeing branding for all of Paradigm? No. I have a counterpart, and we have several team members. Mm -hmm. And we also have a talent department that has a branding team. And so the way that we work, because we think collaboration is actually the key to success, we all are talking they're working on way different stuff, different buyers sometimes, but they're getting intel about, hey, Lexus needs a voiceover person for this, or hey, this is the plan for this. So we piece together everything, and then we can be more knowledgeable about what's going on in the landscape, and then we can go divide and conquer. I actually found that interesting lately. I'm, I watch, you know, I'm a big movie fan, so it's like I can hear Julia Roberts' voice as a voiceover and know that that's her. And I find it real interesting. Brands are now paying a lot of money for recognizable voices like that without ever seeing them. So a good half of the audience won't realize Julia Roberts was the spokesperson for whatever she just voiced. Like that's a more subtle way. Like this familiar voice is playing in the back of your ear, but you never actually see that person. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff where, uh, you know, we'll have artists score music for stuff that they may or may not get credit for outwardly. I had an artist do wake up tones for Apple and you'll never know who it is, but it doesn't matter. That's amazing to be integrated into so many phones across the world. Mm. So there's ways to do it both ways. You can do stuff where you're outward facing and you're getting credit, or you can do things where you're just doing passion projects and cool stuff and you may or may not get noticed and someone might figure it out and it ends up on the internet and spreads or you know you can publicize it yourself but it really just depends on the artist and like what they want so for the younger bands that have young managers listening getting into brands and taking that kind of money has to do with having a big enough footprint where people recognize you, right? There's not like money that's out there for baby bands that are on Warp Tour. That is actually slowly becoming not as true because I mean- There's a door opening there? The former Windish roster, we had stuff, you know, like I said earlier, that we signed early, early, early. And so I'm not in the business of just servicing my top five clients, which some other agencies do. Uh, we do so many deals like mass volume because I'm out there trying to help feed these little ones who really need the money more and than a lot of brands are coming to the conclusion that yes like love Beyonce she's great but attaching to a Beyonce or a Lady Gaga or you know someone who's massive like yeah you get a name people know it but the engagement isn't as good it's easy to just throw money at someone and get something big it's different to help foster and grow with an artist and be able to be like hey we found this early look how smart we are <laughs> so a lot of our buyers will come to us and be like what's the new hot shit like what do you got that's like cool what have you signed in the last couple months who's bubbling up so we have a ton of buyers that if i say this is the shit they know my track record i've made them look good so they'll trust and a lot of companies are switching from massive massive deals to doing more developmental deals like i always say the red bull model is a really cool one because they they help support across like many verticals 
and they're trying to like support you to grow and then they want to grow with you and then you're loyal to red bull and that's kind of where things are shifting and if we only did deals for like our top 10 or 15 clients we wouldn't do barely any deals i mean we do bunch but i mean we do mass mass volumes like i'm not straying away from five hundred dollar deals thousand dollar deals five thousand dollar deals i mean it's everywhere from like trade and clothes like i'll get people gifted we don't commission 10 percent of a shirt like it <laughs> i take, get the left sleeve it <laughs> it takes time and effort but it's important to develop relationships it's good to make clients happy if they look good it helps me everyone's happy and you're getting the artists used to dealing with a brand early yeah, on so like, they're starting to understand how that works on yeah we're very low risk exactly so it's like we don't limit ourselves to the big seven figure stuff we do Everything from the biggest acts down to the low new acts. We've gotten new baby signings on activations at a major festival I can't talk about. That's freaking huge. You know, it's crazy. Let's jump over to the festival stuff for a second because your roster is just huge with the festival world. When you're branding those, and obviously you're working under the brand of a Coachella or a Lollapalooza or ACL, whatever you're playing. Are there different restrictions on how you're using that marketing and how you're building into that and how you're working around that? Because obviously you guys are trying to maximize that view. Yeah, so with my specific role, you know, Heineken, Samsung, Bud Light, all these companies are activating on site. So I try to do my best to help supplement what people get paid on festivals because while everyone thinks everyone's making like buku money at every festival, agents have to book these things so far out now. So by the time the festival plays off, the artist that was once at one level might be massive, but you have to like hedge your bets and make sure that you're getting them on the festival. So yeah, when Palm Book Blord the first time on Coachella, she was on a very small stage. And by the time the date played, she could have been on the main stage easily. Yeah. I mean, there's something cool to that too. It's like, you know, it's a little more intimate, but it's I funny. Tried... Tom said the exact same thing. <laughs> you were lucky enough to get to see her. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, like I'll talk to Bud Light and, you know, I'm very close with them, love what they do. They'll be like, who do you got at Lala? Like, this is our plan. And so I'll hit them up with the people we have playing. I'll omit people that are underage that I know are going to make us look stupid because I'm not going to pass along dumb stuff or things that don't fit the brand. Right, you know their brand. Exactly. Which is why they come to you. Exactly. So we pitch stuff and they booked a bunch of our artists on it and some of it ends up paying more than they got to play the festival. This is like playing their house or something? Yeah, or like, you know, doing a, meet, or whatever. doing a meet and greet, going and playing some games, you know, they do some really cool stuff and there's some content involved. Because right, there's a bunch of sponsorships going out outside the festival that's wrapped around. Yeah, and you know, so our clients are more artistic, they're more cautious, and so it's our job to maneuver the deal to make sure that both sides feel like they're getting what they should and that we're not putting anyone outside their comfort zone. And so... With the festivals, it's cool because you can play the festival and then also get paid to do some other stuff, which really helps your bottom line because we're trying to keep people in business. Now, are you running all that stuff by the curators of the festival before you take it as far as if you're playing again or something like that, even if it's a private? Yeah, we always clear everything. I mean, we don't do sneaky stuff. Well, no, I, I didn't mean it like that. No, yeah. But it, I mean, is that the nomenclature where you take it back and would you tell Paul Tillett that we've got a corporate for it for Budweiser's offering us for a private? Well, if they're uh, an official sponsor of the festival, they clear everything with the promoter. So, you know, we'll always check with the responsible agent and management, make sure that everyone's on the same page. But 
But every, every everyone knows it's, it's, there's transparency. Yeah, it's sanctioned. But okay. if there's you know offsite stuff that's not like throwing a party at South by and not telling South. By yeah. So you know, so, like Cal Calvin Klein did a party around Coachella last year and booked some stuff on that, and we had to make sure that everyone was cool with it. So we're very cautious. We are very good partners to our people. We are not in the business of screwing people over. So we're uber cautious on clearing stuff. Cool. So everybody's in the game. So if, if a promoter of, let's say, AC during Bonnaroo came back and said, we don't like the idea of that act playing a second time this weekend, even as a private, could they kill that off? I mean, technically, like if it's in the contract, yeah. But a lot of times our promoters are pretty understanding or there'll be a caveat like, can we make sure that they promote this as well? Okay. And we'll work together to make sure everyone's happy because we don't want anyone to be like sandy about anything. Yeah, I mean, I know some of those EDM acts actually wind up losing on some of the festivals without the branding help because they spent yeah. so much money on production Yeah, that it's really more about their set and that the set releases and one of those big festivals sets them up for the next year of their touring. Exactly. I mean, it's like you have to invest in yourself and your future. So sometimes that costs money and sometimes you'll break even, sometimes you'll make money. A lot of times you're going to take a little bit of a bath. Uh, that's where we try our best to help to supplement you know a lot of times we'll get managers that call and are like hey we're doing this tour labels not helping us blah 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 production costs this much we're at a x deficit and i'm like oh, shit so you know we try our best to help them not lose money right but some of those things are loss leaders for the acts to set up the next yeah, year right? i mean you know you know some people get it and they are cool with it but at the end of the day like if we can do everything within our power to prevent that, like I want to do that because, you know, working at a record label and recouping tour support was very traumatizing for me <laughs> because <laughs> I'd be going in the system and looking and I'm like, oh gosh, this platinum artist is like negative. You know, I'm artist centric. I always have been artist centric. I always want to help artists. So if we can do anything to prevent them from taking a loss, not being able to tour, not being able to make music, dipping out of the game, that is a mega fail for me and us. So we're doing whatever we can to sustain a business for these artists. All right, before I let you go, can you give some advice to younger acts that are coming up that are trying to market and brand themselves? What are some of the things they need to have that when you first get an act coming out of the roster that you absolutely make sure are in place? I think... This could be a pretty deep one, but great press photos, great socials. You need to have a consistent tone so that your artist is a voice and that voice is consistent because you can tell when someone else is tweeting for someone or it keeps changing. And yeah, if it's different band members, like they might have different tones, but people will figure that out. I also think that you need to understand who you are. You need to have like reality on where you're at and where you want to go and you need to shake hands and kiss babies and work the room and play great shows and meet your fans you just have to work and if they don't work like we can work harder than you but like it might not work but i think just uh i mean you just have to be in it to win it can you give us an example will you critique the promoter 101 brand as if it, we were a band because you know the brand right I mean, you yeah. see it on social. um i think it's hilarious <laughs> 
But no, I mean, if if we were coming in and you just signed us and we were an act, I mean, I, I know we're not, we're a podcast, but you're familiar with it. So as far as the tone and the voice and imagery, is it all in the same line as you were speaking about or what would you advise Yeah, I think I think it is. I think it's got a definite theme. It makes me laugh a lot. I know I'm catching you off guard and I wasn't planning on asking no, you, but it's going to cool. be funny. It makes me laugh a lot. I would tell, you know, artists that start beef on Twitter or like out people, like at least you're like very cryptic, but inevitably someone figures out who it is and then they'll like post it. You have to be really careful and anything that's on the internet, like whether you delete it or not, it lives on. It's always there. Right. Like nothing goes away. So you just have to be super careful about like who and what you do, but you're playful and you're very cautious about how you convey your message. So I think it's cool. Oh yeah, I got to work with those agents and managers again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think there's a tone to it that just like is poking fun at a really funky, crazy, hilarious industry that I love to death. But playfully. Yeah, it's playful. Hard to think about the list of people on the move without putting Brandon on top of anything in this industry. He's a true mover and a shaker and just listening to him is inspiring. This is Joe Escalante from The Vandals and you're listening to Promoter 101. This next guest needs no introduction. Our friend of the Bay Area, the legendary Don Holiday. Promoter 101, we're at South by Southwest, and I'm joined with a mentor and legend, Don Holiday. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome, Dan. I'm excited to be here. You've had some changes going on in your job structure, but let's go back first and talk about history. You worked with the great one. You worked for Graham. I did, but I was second generation. I wasn't one of the loyalists. I came second generation and I had the privilege and honor to work with all the people that were working under Bill for the first generation and I was the recipient of all of their knowledge and Bill's. So when you say all of them you're talking about Greg, Sherry, Lee. Who... I'm more talking about Peter and Bob Bersotti. Uh, Lee came after me actually and Queenie Taylor, David Mayeri, the people who were generous. How long were you there? I was there 14 years. I never worked indoors, though. I worked outdoors. I was a box office person, the manager of the club, the old Waldorf, Wolfgang's, uh, the Warfield, Fillmore, and I worked days on the green and outdoor productions. I loved it. Okay. And when you transitioned from the world of Graham? Well, I actually worked for Bill. I worked for Slim's, and I booked a small bar south of Market called the Paradise Lounge all at one time. I was doing a show at the Paramount with Mary Chapin Carpenter. Paramount Oakland? Yes. And uh, I got a call from a person who had just opened their own business in Oakland, Berkeley, and said that I was taking food off his table. And so I thought that was the day probably to quit the Bill Graham organization. It was a couple of years after Bill died. So I called my boss at the Bill Graham organization and said I thought that was the day to quit. And I quit from that organization. So the person that told you you're taking food off their table, were they with the Graham organization? Yes. Okay. And they're currently with another company that does a festival in the park. <laughs> <laughs> Familiar with that promoter? Yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> Just trying to be clear. Okay. So you left and you've been in the industry nonstop ever since. So from that concert and that date, how did that change? And because you became a very strong independent promoter. I am and will continue to be. And it was great. I had a really good run. It was 30 years and we kept the clubs fiercely independent and I was a scrapper. I came from the streets. I was a punk rock girl and my interest was to keep us independent and successful and we stayed that way. I can't speak for the clubs at this point. Yeah, that just changed recently. We'll get into that in a second. So you do something in San Francisco and successfully have been able to do 
which nobody else can really do in any other major market. You've been able to keep all of the clubs friendly and keep the loyalty in check, which kind of keeps the prices in check and the agents in check because you guys all communicate. Now, there's been a couple of venues that are outside that alliance. I know that the independent does their own thing and they're not part of that, but there are a lot of the venues in the market that have all worked together to avoid cannibalizing the shows and the ticket prices and you fostered that. That's true. And I think it's a really great working guideline for any city. There's no reason to pick each other apart. There's no reason to cost the audience higher prices and tickets. There's no reason to be competitive. There's enough clubs, there's enough bands. And if you share the pie, you all do well. And it's not exactly collusion, it's agreements. Well, the first time you told me this, you kind of blew my mind. I came to visit you, sat downstairs at the club, and you explained how it works and how I should try and get all the promoters in line in my markets. And I looked at you like you were high, and you made the comment. It was like, it can happen. I know it just blew your mind, but it can happen. And I think that most promoters are alpha, and it's really hard to get everyone to sit down and agree and go along, especially every time you add another personality to the mix, and then you have all these new young dogs that constantly come into the business that are willing to overpay to get inside the loop to get to the cooler acts. Because it's a constant balancing act of trying to keep these new people in line with new ideas and at the same time keep the pie the way it's supposed to be. It's a fight. It's got to be a full-time job. It was and is. And a lot of the promoters have moved on. And they've either retired or taken other jobs or sitting back. But I think it will stay in place for a bit. There's still relatively little competition in San Francisco. As you said, the Independent is on their own sailboat going to Tahiti while we're all staying in San Francisco, but it does still work. And I'm proud of it. I'm proud that a community conscience can guide and keep the ticket prices where they are for the audience, because most of the audience is not .com tech money. Most of the audience is still kids. I mean, our clubs are all ages, and those kids can still come out. The adults still come out and appreciate the value. We're not running clubs where American Express holders get first tickets. We're running clubs that people start in. We get people on the way up and on the way down and when they want one-offs. So we aren't doing any VIP ticketing. We're just a music club that's loyal to music. Are you not allowing X to do the VIP like meet and greets and stuff? No. Oh, they can do it, but they have to pay for it. No, we don't do any outside ticketing at all. But you'll let them do their lifts and their meet and greet stuff in the club, right? Yeah, there's a charge for it. Yeah, but it's not like it's not allowed. No, but they, they need to, to go it. through our ticketing. They can't do their own ticketing. We don't allow any outside ticketing. So they need to use our ticketing system, and then they can do an add-on on our ticketing. A lift through the system. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So up until just recently, you ran the clubs and that's changed. So Slims and Great American have been under your direction for years and you have transformed. So I don't know how much of that you're comfortable talking about. And... Oh, leaving? Well, I wanted to. I had 30 wonderful years. But in the last probably decade, with San Francisco's regulations changing and the amount of business work I was doing was outweighing music and I hated it. I hated worrying about how 60 employees were going to be fed, how we were going to keep all their jobs. I hated the city. Uh, it was making it impossible for a small business to 
succeed. I had a lot of loyalty from landlords, produce delivery, outside vendors, bands, but uh, I used all my vacation time starting in October right after Hardly Strictly Bluegrass and contemplated what I wanted to do. And uh, I decided I wanted to leave the businesses and concentrate on curating Hardly Strictly Bluegrass. And I wanted to put more time into being an activist. I'm a child of the 60s. And I watched activism be successful. And a collective conscience made a change in the Vietnam War. And I wanted to go back to that period of my life and persist and resist. And I went to the Women's March. and. The production sucked. It was awful. D.C.? No, in San Francisco. And I wanted to help. I knew that my history in public assembly could make a difference. So I've been doing that too, besides curating the festival, which is my first love. And I've been spending a lot of time reading, walking my dog, and doing things that I want to do. And I haven't thought about the club since I walked out the door. Well, since I signed paperwork that I was done. Okay. Let's talk about Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, because this is an amazing thing. It is. You have been put in charge of doing a free event at a high level, real talent. That's not a show in a park where there's one real act and then 70 locals. This is acts fight to get on this, and it's some of the best acts in the world, mostly bluegrass, but some form or another of country or Americana. Well, it's everything from punk to gospel. We've had Social D, Flogging Molly. Gosh, we've had great stuff. Mike Patton came and brought 50 50-person Italian orchestra and had that one year. Buckethead played one year and was really well-received. Warren Hellman and I met in 2000, and there was two other people at the table. He asked if we could put on a bluegrass festival in Golden Gate Park. I said, yes, but you have to hire Hazel Dickens. And he said, I love Hazel Dickens. And I'm like, okay, but we need to have Emmy Lou there so people will come. So he said, I love Emmy Lou. And that was the beginning. And we started with two stages. That year was primarily bluegrass. The next year, he wanted everyone that played to come back. And I'm like, well, we have to have new people or nobody will come. This is free from the very beginning, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, it was a gift to San Francisco from the Hellman family. He was very successful in San Francisco and he wanted his family to give back. So it grew and I get to curate it. I get to put anybody that I like on a stage. I am the most spoiled talent buyer in the world. I don't have to be concerned with ticket sales because there are none. There's no sponsorship. I don't have to think about that. I just book music and it's a pleasure. I can walk down the street and hear a band and go, oh, do you want to play the festival? I can walk into a coliseum and hear a band and go, oh, do you want to play a festival? And it's just fantastic. And Warren did pass away six years ago and it was really sad. It was a terrible time for me and for his family. He was the spirit of the festival for me. I booked for Warren. If Warren liked to act and said hot dog, I would go for two hot dogs. I would try to book something that I heard hot dog, hot dog over. And I still do that but now it's for the public. 750,000 people come over the weekend and no fences, no attitudes. And we have a friends and family area, but all we do is move picket fence 10 feet to the left or 10 feet to the right, depending on how many friends and family there are. There's literally no difference. The bathrooms might be better. And Warren came to South by Southwest two years and loved it. This is a man who I got to watch music change. When I met him, he was in his 60s. And I watched a man grow and change. He was a Republican. He had some pretty harsh worldviews. And he had a hole, though. He was incredibly successful in life, work, 
sports family, wonderful family. Looking at the picture, an incredibly wealthy, born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And he had a hole and music filled it. And it was different than watching a child because this man was fully formed. And his heart sang for 11 years of his life. And it was music that did it. It was so inspiring. I loved it. You certainly seem passionate about it. It's yeah. A, so a labor of love. Hardly labor, but of love. So he's gone and you're still doing the festival. The family's committed to continuing to fund this? Oh, yes. Yeah. There's no end in sight. Well, I mean, there's always ends to things. But no, right now there's no end in sight. So your budget must be massive for talent based on what you guys are putting out there. Well, it is free as acts and Agents should remember, there's no ticket price, so there's no revenue. So we expect acts to come in at a level that's not equal to a ticketed event. Okay. So I so, expect a deal. Which is fair. I expect a deal. It's a gift. It's a gift. A little help wouldn't hurt. A lot of help wouldn't hurt. So who are some of the bigger acts over the years that you were surprised you got? Because there's some really big acts that have played this. I'm not surprised I got anybody. Of course I got everybody I wanted. There's no <laughs> surprise here, Dan. It's a wonderful festival. People get to play for people that have never heard of them. It increases awareness. There's 750,000 people in my park. So, of course, acts want to play this. It's not a bad thing to add to the resume, but over the couple of years, what are the highlights for you? Highlights. Dropkick Murphys. They were really fun. I mean, odd things are my highlights. When you have that many people in Dropkick Murphys on stage, is there any security risk of like it getting out of hand when you've got a band that rowdy? And that many people? It's so much fun. Sure, there's a pit, but they're going to fall down on grass. And it's a city park. Who are they going to sue? The city. And how long does that last? 15 years. But no, there's something about being outdoors and no fence. It's a calming effect. People are respectful of it. Yes. There's room. They're not packed in. And granted, San Francisco is a community where the music has always kind of overshadowed all of the other things. It's and true. And we still are. I'm not sure that would work anywhere else in the same matter that you would be concerned if there were that many people in a park in Philadelphia watching Dropkick Murphys. Um, probably different. Connor Oberst comes on Fridays and he curates a show. And last year he had uh, Jim James and Mort was there for an, another stage. And he had a little kind of Monsters of Folk reunion that was pretty <laughs> cool. And, you know, it was incidental. It wasn't like part of the draw. But the people who were over there totally dug it. And it was great. Jim James didn't do his Lollapalooza set. He did something specific for that day. He nerded out. Yeah. Which I liked. So people don't normally, and we don't really want them to do their festival show. We don't want them to do their Coliseum show. We usually would like them to tailor something to Golden Gate Park. That makes sense. It's a special event. It is. Okay, so new challenge in your life, new day, more free time. Mm -hmm. What's coming next? What else is on your plate? What are you thinking about? You know, I'm waiting to see. I mean, I've always been guided by a thought and principle and some sort of ghost, I think. So I'm waiting for the ghost to tell me what I'm going to do next. You're taking a couple of years off of South By and you're back this year, which is good because the agent promoter meeting was this afternoon and it hasn't been the same without you. Oh, thank you. I'm going to encourage all talent buyers to resist. Resist overpaying. Resist idiot contracts. There's some contracts coming out now that are crazy. Oh, where the addendums are awesome. Yeah, and they're taking 100% responsibility and putting it on the promoters rather than taking some risk themselves, the agencies. They're saying all decisions are made by the agency and that it's not a mutual decision anymore. It's 
the agent and the act get to decide if they're not coming, but you still have to pay 100%. And that's fucking ridiculous. That's not going to happen. We cannot accept those contracts. And everyone needs to read their contracts. You can't just sign them because there's a lot of changes now. Yeah, and it's important. Not only, and some of the younger promoters, I think, don't understand that it's worth having a friend that's in law school read over those and know what those terms mean. It doesn't have to be a lawyer. Call a buddy, buy him a beer, give him free tickets to shows. Yeah. Have somebody that understands a paralegal. Everybody knows somebody that works in law. And if you can afford it, hire you know a lawyer that's a couple hundred bucks an hour to actually read. Once you see the template from each agency... You know it. You don't have to read every contract from Paradigm. Right. Make sure you definitely check to make sure your terms match up. But right. And but and see strike. the changes. Yeah. Strike. And Get when they stance. come back to you and say you need to put this back in, have somebody go through it and have your responses ready so you can say no and this is why. And also mutually, just say mutually we decide if it's a rain date. Mutually you decide decisions so that you have a say in it and not let the agency just go, we're canceling, you pay. Because it will come to that one day. They're not putting those clauses in because they think it's never going to happen. So that's really important. The other important is that you have as much weight as an agent has. You're the play. They need you more than you need them. Walk away from a date it's okay. You're going to get another play. And you just have to keep your own integrity and monitor yourself and you'll be fine. That is my job this afternoon. I hope young buyers are there. And let's talk about the next generation of buyers. I don't feel that they care about the history of our business. I'm a nerd for our business. I I love the unwritten rules. I love the internal politics. I love the hierarchy and understanding. I mean, I remember the days when we got in trouble for calling managers and how that changed and why that changed. But the structure of it, not only really cool to know the history, you can see how those guys developed on and how they beat the system and work through it by understanding those guys. And a lot of them are still alive. So if you befriend them, you can call them anytime and say, help me with this. When I'm in San Francisco and I have a problem, I'm able to shoot you an email and like, how do you deal with this? I remember we were trying to figure out how to deal with front of house staff for Palace of Finance. She's like, any ideas? She's like, I'll send you staff. It's like, it was a one line email. I don't know how to do this stuff. Just go, any thoughts? Yeah, sure. We'll help you. Oh, great. That's even easier. But it's one of those things when you're communicating with the people that know the history, they help you solve problems and they can mentor you. But I feel like the next generation doesn't care. But I also think that it's our job to teach them decorum and what the etiquette of our system and our job is and i think that if you put the etiquette in place they'll follow it but you need to show them and we just absorbed it i don't think anybody really showed us we just followed suit and i still think that before you do call a manager you do go to the agent and you do the best you can and i think that all the rules and the guidelines that we followed are still really important and I know that we can't exactly bitch slap our younger staff because it's not political anymore to do it. (laughs) It's not politics. But I still think that putting in place and teaching by example works. And you meant figuratively bitch slapping your staff. Yes, of course. (laughs) I love the pause there. Of course. I mean, I was lucky. I had a really great staff and they're still there and they're really well trained and I don't think they'll forget a thing. So with the next generation of buyers, they're so savvy on the internet that it seems like they've forgotten how to pick up the phone. That is so frustrating. 
I have had a couple youngsters that had worked with us for a while. And I can't tell you how many times I'd say, did you talk to blah, blah, blah. And I'll get a yes. And I'll find out what they did was email them and hadn't gotten a response. Or they texted them and hadn't gotten a response. And the answer to me was always yes. And when I found out they didn't just pick up phone and call them, it was like, okay, here are your walking papers. You did not call them. Emailing and texting is not calling. And there's a phone call can solve so many problems because people can email back no or text back no way easier than they can say no on a phone. And it used to be they could say no on a phone really well. Now people tend to say yes on phones, just like they used to say yes in person because phones have become a means of aggression now because there's no face-to-face. I think calling is very effective. And I think people, not only calling is what meeting in person used to be. And you brought up a good point when you were interviewing Steve yesterday, Martin. You asked him about meeting people in person and were people more likely to communicate and say yes to a buyer if they'd met them and have a face to the name. And I had experience maybe 20 some odd years ago here at South by Southwest. I went for a cup of tea with Frank Riley, and I got all his acts from that point on. And that was 20... You did that here? Yeah. He was didn't he live... Not... Oh, he wasn't in the no. bed then. He was, yeah. He was still... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sense. Maybe it was 25 years ago. Yeah, because he was at Monterey for a long time. Yeah. It was longer than that, because I'm also the godmother of his two children. So that friendship and that acquaintanceship came out of here and a cup of tea. So the value of meeting people is... So wonderful. Spend the money. Go to L.A., go to New York, and go around to the desks and meet people. Yeah, and we talk about that. There's something that I I saw in Graham's book that I read when I was in high school. They're now making it into a movie. But he talked about losing the stones. So he was told on the phone he was not going to get the stones to her. He jumped on an airplane, flew overnight to London from San Francisco, and was in the manager's office the next morning. He got on the plane and said, this is important. I dropped everything. I went from San Francisco to London. I'm not done with this conversation yet. And successfully wound up becoming the Stones promoter for that tour because he showed up and showed how important it was. And there was, um, I tried that on Blink-182 when they were going from clubs to theaters on Dude Ranch when it was originally happening. Rick DeVoe called and said, we're going to go with the bigger promoter. We don't know that a 19-year-old can handle this jump. And I was like, I'm their guy. It's like, man, I'm sorry. Got on an airplane, flew to San Diego the next morning, showed up at Bill Silva Presents where Rick DeVoe was working at the time. And I was like, man, this is all that matters. I beat him to the office that morning. I hung out with John Woges and Bill Silva for a little while, waiting for him to come in, which was great. I got great face time with those guys. Sat in Rick's office, grabbed my laptop, and built the offer with him. I was like, tell me what it's got to be. Let's do this. I don't want to lose this act. It's that important. I will doubt on every detail. This is my history, and history mattered back then. Yeah. And he sold me the show, and it was like, I don't think there was any way in hell he was going to say no to me in person. It just, no. I think he was a little intimidated that I showed up, like, that it meant that much to me. Well, showing your passion, and your passion's real, that usually wins something. I think, and you know, we, I learned from Bill, and anybody that learned in that organization does things right. So you were a smart 19-year-old that you read Bill's book. I wanted to be a promoter since the time I was seven years old. Seven? My parents took me to see Tony Orlando in Dawn at the turn of the century in Denver. And I was like, I want to do this. My mom was like, you want to be a showman? Like, nah. I want to be the guy that's making the monkey dance. Ah, that's great. That's the guy making money backstage. 
She's like, how do you know that? I'm like, look around. Place is packed. Tickets are, what, 40 bucks a piece? It was like a dinner kind of sans vibe. Mm -hmm. Something like the Rat Pack would play. Which There was a lot of these places back in the day. Right. These 650-seat, like, seated dinner showrooms. They do an early and a late. And it's like Donnie Marie would play there. It was like pretty much the William Morris Contemporary Department, like, yeah, whole day. But I was like, yeah, this. This is it. I was seven. My dad's like, you'll grow out of it. I was like, never did. That's fantastic. It's what I always wanted to do. Huh. Make the monkeys dance. And on my watch, most things have happened on accident. I've just fallen into what I'm doing. Worked for the original promoter. They named the award after him. Like, the, the idea that you got to interact with him on a daily basis and... You know, I know he's a normal guy and, you know, he had a lot of personality and there's a lot of different sides to him, but you got that. Yeah, I did. And he was fantastic. And he was. It was a magical time. And then I had meeting Warren and doing the festival. That's a magical time, too. So not to sound like the child of the 60s that I am, I've been walking in magical times and I plan to continue that. So whatever's next will also be magical. I can't think of a better place to end than that. Thank you so much for taking the time, Don. Okay, thank you. Promoter 101 at South by Southwest with Don Holiday. Don is a true industry icon and a mentor. Neil Dixon, President of Canadian Music Week, Promoter 101. Our last interview this week is from martial arts Umang Shaw and breaking artist LEX. They sat down with Dan at the South by Southwest Music Conference in Austin, Texas. Promoter 101, we're at South by Southwest, and we've got a rare moment where we're joined by an up-and-coming artist and great manager hanging out together, and we're going to spend a little time talking about your relationship. Alex, thank you for taking time and being with us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Excellent. We got to spend some time last week in, oddly, another hotel suite. Yes, you know, yes, yeah. Rogan Hotel, IMC. I think more people spend time in a room with call girls when they're hotels, but I hang out with managers. <laughs> I could be a cool girl. Have you been to America before? Is this the first time? Yeah, we played in we New played York. We played in New York recently. Yeah. Well, just in October for New Showcase Mondo and okay. NYC. So we played there. And I think we used that as a, like, kind of like a platform to get the South by Southwest booking. Today, they wanted to see that we played in the States. And you guys are just breaking the state. So I, I do kind of dirty pop music. Yeah, I think that just to define what dirty pop is, it's like hip hop beats, heavy synths, driven guitars, but still with that pop underlying genre in it. So it's catchy and it's got this infectious vibe about it. Um, and when she says that, you know, with the live shows that you essentially do escape reality and you come down to a show, the band won't be like your regular band. You know, uh, we dress them up and they each have their own attitude. And uh, yeah, and back in London, we dress all the venues up. So we have to do the same here. How do you dress a venue up? You do whatever the venue owner will allow you to. If they'll let you paint the walls, you'll paint the walls. Is there a budget then that you guys put into your daily show when you're figuring out your tour budgets? Because you're talking about adding decor, right? I think what we're doing is so we work with a great promotion team, uh, Strange Places, which is part of martial arts. And Oh yeah, let's talk about that for one second yeah. before, and we'll, we'll go right back to yeah. that. But you're not just any manager from the UK breaking in. I mean, Barry Marshall's put a stamp on you. So yeah, that, I mean, right off the bat, <laughs> you, you're back to the Paul McCartney team. Like that kind of legitimizes yourself right in the door. Yeah, I mean, like it's insane. Like I studied music business at university and I had to do a case study on an industry legend and mine had to be Barry Marshall so to get the stamp of approval from someone that you've studied their whole life and how they got into music is insane and also he does also look after acts like Pink which I know is one of your biggest influences mm. so you know I think it's just insane like he came down to the show the other day and his face just lit up and his wife said you know Barry's always happy when he's at the bar 
and he just he, we just stayed at the bar. We drank the bar dry of whiskey, and it was just so much fun. And you know, he's, so you're telling us Barry Marsh is a lush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's a very nice guy, sober guy. He does all it. Yeah, no, <laughs> he's, <great. laughs> no, no, he's a great guy. He's a great guy. But uh, no, it is absolutely insane to have someone of that stature really, really believe in us. He's come to the show. He's seen us dress up the venues. So, you know, essentially what it is, we tell them what we want to do and they come up with a budget and they go, all right, we can make this work. But usually we have a lot of artwork and stuff that we can take around with us. Okay. So like pop-up stuff. Yeah. Okay. Balloons are probably the most expensive thing. Okay. And, and you do that in the lobby or just in the ballroom itself of the venue? We do kind of, we'll scatter some things at the bottom where people are coming in so that they know. So you create the vibe from yeah. the second you walk in the room. Is that easy to do here at South By when you guys are playing at like a 45 minute set and you're moving around to the no, next thing? We're, well, back home it's kind of down uh, and dirty here because it's, yeah. it's South By. Back home we do an extravaganza and that's when we really dress up. I you're hear, headlining a show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Out here we, we can't do that because we've got other bands to play, you know. The band still do their makeup, still dress up. It was quite funny when we played the British Embassy, um, we had some fans that we didn't even know that were there. You, you're talking about the showcase? Yeah, the yeah. showcase. Not literally. The Not the British show. Embassy, yeah. <laughs> British Music Embassy. Latch 30. Because that's how the Brits rock. They have uh, bands going to the Embassy. <laughs> we brought you the Stones, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> By the way, check out our fucking new bands. <laughs> Fuck off, world. <laughs> But um, we had some guy that just came up, going, can we do the face paint too? So we had a couple of people in the crowd that wanted to do the face paint, get them involved. I think you started doing it, people just randomly off the street as well. Well, well people kept coming up to me. They saw me, because, I mean, as you said, it's down and dirty out here, so we had to paint the paint my band out on the streets. It's already starting to happen in the UK for you. There's a buzz, and it's you can see there's a build. What's the plan between management and artists to extend that to the rest of the world? I imagine America would be the next hit list like coming out of the UK as far as like trying to break a market. We're gonna come back in October to do hopefully a full on US tour to hit the markets that we're doing really well on radio with. We're obviously really keen to be out here. Did you learn American before you came over? <laughs> I was about to try an American accent, but nope, no, <laughs> no. Nope. I've noticed you've been saying ass instead of ass. I've always said ass. Ass is very English. Scottish is actually closer to American than English. I'm from Edinburgh. It's funny. There's a couple of things that I picked up when I was in London last week. And there's some things that I think came up a bunch of times. Is it's, it's like big fan of black music. Yeah, and we don't we say were... that in America. It's not the correct nomenclature. It'd be big fan of African-American music. Mm -hmm. But it's not English-American over there. It's just black music. Yeah. I was, every time somebody said it, and because we were at the conference, it came up a lot. Yeah. I think it's weird. I don't say black music. It is weird, right? Yeah. Mm. But then I said it, and I, I'm, I'm totally fine with it. I mean, like, I... No, yeah, I think I, it's part of the nomenclature in the industry there. Yeah. Here we call it urban. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just kind of funny, and it's the urban chart. And it's just kind of funny, because urban doesn't necessarily mean black, technically, but I, in the industry, absolutely does. I think it's a bit silly, because I think it's like saying there's female music. Like, we do all different genres. Black people do all different genres, so how can you call it black music? And there's white people in black music, so how can you call it black? I don't know. Well, just Robin Thicke, nobody else. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you go to Canada, and it's not African-Canadian. No. It's not. He's just a black guy that lives in Canada. It's just yeah. like, here, it's just so ridiculously PC. It's just kind of funny, and it's certainly not African-English. It's just not the way it <laughs> no, works. No, I've never heard that. <laughs> no, it's just odd. We had this insane taxi driver yesterday who picked us up and he had a Super Nintendo in his thing in his cab and we were playing it. But then he goes, oh, you're British. And I went, yeah. And he goes, you're right, you're fucking cunts. And we're like, what? An American dude just called us cunts. <laughs> He's like, yeah, but it's all right to call you cunts because you're English. 
And we're like, yes, <laughs> we've desensitized that word. You guys have, but we have. <laughs> it's funny because yeah. you could call a guy that, it's okay, but I've learned because I have a very female staff, I'm not allowed to say it when talking about a woman in any sense of the word. I have it at the end of one of my songs the other day, and I've never, like, in every place that we played in the UK, everybody just burst out laughing. And then over here, there was kind of this kind of murmur oh, yeah. where the British people were giggling and, like, then half the room weren't. And I was like, oh, this, this is me. You say it about a guy and you say it with an English accent. It's like, he's my buddy. It works. All right. So this is a tip for all the American people. You've got to say it with an A. It's like, can't. So you, you can't. That's like a very cockney way of saying it. And that's like the friendly way of saying it. You say it with the U and you, you emphasize the C. That's when you say it as an insult. There you go. <laughs> Lesson in cunt 101. Sorry. I had to say it. <laughs> I had to say it. When you guys are getting a vision for the world and what the next step is and how you're going to get into America, what's that conversation like? Where does that drive? Is the management, is that you going to her saying, this is what I see? Or do you come to him and say... It's time to break the states. I, I, I want to be an international pop star now. I'm quite ambitious and I'm a dreamer, so I, I think of something really big. Who are your idols? My number one idol was Freddie Mercury. He's like the only one I feel really comfortable saying he's my idol. Now, I've seen the videos, the especially the current one that you got attached to your emails, which I think is great. You guys are doing some next level stuff, and there's real production involved with that. That's not something that somebody did on an iPad real quick. It was a really well laid out video. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Somebody's investing some money. Is, is that the label? Is that management? It's actually a lot cheaper. People are always really shocked at how little I've spent on my videos. Yeah. Um, because I speak to friends and I have the vision and I, I take on as much of the work as possible. So sometimes I'll be directing it. Sometimes I'll be editing it. Sometimes I'll be doing the graphics on top. So very DIY. Yeah. yeah. But I, mean, it, it, I agree, it looks doesn't look that way. I think it helps having a lot of friends in different fields. Who are your hardcore followers? What's your demo? We reckon 17 to 32. Split between males and females, but really? predominantly females. Let's yes. get back into your career and not talk about creepy guys so much. <laughs> are, are you sure you don't want to talk about creepy guys? Because I, I heard a funny creepy guy story yesterday. Oh, yes. And uh, over on the Hilton, you know, they've got the computers like in the foyer. Mm -hmm. Guy was just straight up watching porn. In the lobby. In the, the lobby. With his South by Southwest badge on everything. Well, he was demoing interactive. <laughs> Well, and that's the amazing thing. We don't really talk about it much on the podcast, but most of the things that the industry has, we can thank to porn. And that's because porn is financed better than the rest of technology. They want to be there first because if they're there the quickest in their industry, and it's such a big financial industry, mm. you get the market share. And that's where the money is. So those guys invest first, and the rest of the world benefits. I think you should submit a panel about this for South by next year. I think it'd be a good interactive panel, actually. <laughs> We'll get Ron Jeremy to moderate. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank you guys so much for taking time and talking to us on Promoter oh, 101. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You can tell there's a strong bond between manager and artist there. This is Ben Mensch from APA. You're listening to Promoter 101. Listen to more music. Well, that's it for Promoter 101. Coming up next week, we're joined by Primary Talents' Dave Chumley from the UK. Live Nation's Senior VP, Sing Over Asia, Jason C. Miller. The Vandals, Joe Escalane, talking about being punk rock for over 30 years. And Neil Dixon gives us a sneak preview of this year's Canadian Music Week. Plus, we'll have the news of the week. In the weeks to follow, guests will include Rob Hallett, Stuart Galbraith, Phil Rodriguez, Steve Zapp, Brian Zisk, Renatus Nakusha, Ted Cohen, Ticketfly's Jeff White, 
Triple H's Whitney Bond, Sasha Bambaji, Martin Atkins, Ed Bicknell, Barry Dickens, Paul Lohr, Ben Minch, Trip Brown, Tom Chauncey, and so many more. If you have any thoughts or feedback about the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email with any of your ideas to Steiny at promoter101.net. And you can follow me at W. Luke Pierce and Dan at The Jew. And the show is at Promoters101 on Twitter. Be sure to subscribe to Promoter 101 wherever you podcast. And if you like what we're doing, please tell a friend or drop us a review. We want to know what you think. Miss any of the past podcasts, you can always catch up at Promoter101.net. Past guests include Jay Massiano, Tom Ross, Mark Geiger, Tom Windish, Jamie Loeb, Brian O'Connell, Stuart Ross, Kevin Lyman, Shep Gordon, John Giddings, Straight No Chaser, and so many more. I'm Luke Pierce, and for Steiny, have a great week. You're listening to Promoter 101. This is Martin Atkins from Public Image, Killing Joke, Ministry, Nine Inch Nails. I got a Grammy, a pig face. Fuck off. <laughs>